Aloha, I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak. Welcome to The Body Show. Each week we talk about health and fitness, but none of what we discuss replaces a visit to your own primary care provider. Have you heard much about HIV recently? You know, back in the 80s and 90s, it was a condition for which science really didn't have as much of a grasp as we do now. And these days, HIV can actually be considered a chronic illness. But how is this diagnosed? Who should be tested? Who tends to get diagnosed these days? And what's the difference between HIV and AIDS? Well, today we're going to hear from our expert, Scott Denny. He is a master's certificate certified physician assistant, and he is an HIV specialist with the American Academy of HIV Medicine. And he's going to help explain for us what is the difference between HIV and AIDS, and what are some of the infection trends? Who might be at risk, and should we all be tested? Welcome to The Body Show, Scott. Thank you. Aloha. Thanks for having me. Well, thanks for being on. Now, right before the show, we talked about topics that I have have a little bit of a weak spot in. And those are things that I don't necessarily see in my daily practice every day. And it's not because it's not out there. I've I kind of have this this very established patient base. And sometimes because I've grown older, so have a lot of my patients, and they're kind of moving into the geriatric age. But yet that may be a group be a group of people that need to consider learning about and testing for HIV. It used to be that there were only certain risk categories for folks who should be tested. CDC recently recommended that all adults get tested at least once in their lifetime. What are the current recommendations for testing? And who tends to be a risk group we may not consider firsthand? Sure, sure. Yes, the the CDC did um, update their recommendations. And now we do... We do know that they recommend anyone from the age of 13 to 64 be tested at least once in their life. Individuals who are at higher risk, we would want to test them a little bit more frequently. Those are going to be your um, sex workers. That's going to be your, your MSM, your men who have sex with men population, and your IV drug users. Anyone who, who seems to have some sort of high-risk sexual activity, you probably want to test them every three to six months. The big, the big concern about HIV is that there's so many of them who are not diagnosed. And that's the real problem because we know that those are probably the individuals who are spreading it and not knowing it. It's about, I think, uh, one in eight. So about 12.5% of the population doesn't know they have HIV. So we do, we do recommend, we stress to be tested if you're at all at any risk. Now, would certain groups of people like transgender individuals be in a situation where they might be at high risk? That's a great question. Uh, The transgender population, as you may know, has been historically disenfranchised, deinstitutionalized for for eons. Many of them don't even want to go to a healthcare provider because they're worried about harassment, discrimination. I read the other day there was uh, 28% of them say that they've been discriminated against or harassed in the doctor's office when they're Really? Like what sort of things are happening? They're just treated improperly. They're not respected using proper pronouns. They're not respected using the proper name that they prefer. Overall, their, their preferred gender is pretty disregarded. These individuals, because of this, you can imagine they go on the streets, they have to sell their bodies for money, they can't get jobs because they're discriminated against, so they end up being sex workers, 41 times more likely to acquire HIV than just the general population. So we do worry about those people. Well, and you know, if you look historically at different societies, you can see that, for example, the Samoan society had a complete acceptance of people who identified as transgender. And 
really, even now, they have this different sense of gender in certain cultural groups that have kind of identified that there are people who are not categorically male and not categorically female and that may have different characteristics of both or may identify with a different gender. What is it about our society today that makes us seem to have difficulties accepting that? Well, I think that we live in a gender binary society. I think that historically that's how we we view each other as just male or female instead of really understanding that we're all on a spectrum. And that sense of gender identity, a lot of people seem to confuse it with sexual orientation. They think that if you're transgender, you, you must be gay. And they have nothing to do with one another. So the way that, that we look at gender identity is how that person feels deep within them, innately, their, their gender. And it doesn't have to match their, their biological sex. And I think that's really, really hard for people to, to grasp that concept. Well, because it also makes me wonder is how they feel inside about their gender having to do with societal norms and expectations. Yeah. That maybe they feel a certain way because society expects all women act this way, all men act that way. And so I wonder, I think it's a lot more complicated than than biology would ever suggest. And it can't be binary. I definitely think so. I definitely think so. I mean, that, that gender expression, as you're referring to, uh, it challenges many of them their whole lives to be able to find that congruency. It's a, it's a real struggle. We have a, a really great transgender clinic that I oversee, and we manage their overall health, um, and we manage, obviously, HIV testing and things like that. So I, I always try and encourage them to, to reach out to their primary care providers, and I uh, encourage the, the PCPs, the primary care providers, to make a, a welcoming place for these people, for the LGBT in general. Absolutely. You really, if there's one place where you really should not be discriminated against, it's at a doctor's office. One of the things we learn in medical school is all bodies are the same inside, that (laughs) if you look inside, a heart is a heart is a heart. It doesn't matter what ethnic background someone is. It doesn't, you know, hearts all function the same way and livers all function the same way and gallbladders all do the same thing. Luckily, some people can live without them because, you know, there's gallstones. But still, (laughs) the internal organs and how they work, it's 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 a non-discriminatory sort of situation. So for people to feel that bad to come into the medical system, it really just makes me sad. And I hate to hear that. And hopefully we will become better as providers to make sure people don't feel that way. Because the body functions the way the body is going to function. And we need to learn how to keep that body healthy. That's the whole idea. Absolutely. Now, when we talk about people who get tested, is it still the standard protocol where you have to go do counseling, get tested, come back, get the results in person, draw blood, do this several series of tests? Or have we made it simple now? Can you do it through, you know, the mail? Can you do anonymous HIV testing somehow? Well, the recommendation is going to be that if you do request to be tested with your doctor, that some sort of counseling, at least in the state of Hawaii, some sort of counseling is provided about the nature of the test and what the results might bring. Um, We do have a a lot of other ways of doing it, rapid testing, oral swabs. Uh, Those are over-the-counter sold. We we have them in our pharmacies. Are they accurate? They're about 99% accurate. So pretty accurate. They're pretty accurate. You know, the problem you have with that is you go home and you do your own swab and you wait 20 minutes and what if it lights up? You're you're home alone. You're left alone, right. So it, it it is a challenge. I would rather they know 
than and, and face that that burden of what do I do with this information than not know. True. So doing some testing is better than nothing, but testing when you have backup of a healthcare provider that can really help walk you through what happens next would be ideal. Definitely. Now, when we think about infection trends, you know, we don't hear so much about HIV as much because it has become a chronic illness. And we have seen people who have lived a long time with it. Magic Johnson has done a fabulous job living a long time, and he is well known to be HIV positive. What are the trends now? We may not hear about it, but that does not mean it's going away. Well, it's interesting because you're right. It is It is just something we consider a chronic disease. But I always tell people that first and foremost, it's an infectious disease. So there's still that transmissibility factor that we always have to consider. And part of the problem of this idea of it being this chronic condition, uh, yeah, it's great that we have ways of, of treating people and giving them the, the regular lifespan that a non-HIV positive person would have. The problem is there's become a real AIDS fatigue out there. It's not talked about. You know, back in the day when we were watching our brothers and sisters go down from AIDS, these younger generation, they've, they've not seen that. So there's become this real complacency that, yeah, I can take a pill and and look fine and feel fine. So what's the big deal? Um, we are still seeing consistent infection rates, though. It, it hovers at about 50,000 uh, every year for the United States. And that, that doesn't vary all that much. In Hawaii alone, uh, in 2015, we had 152 new diagnoses. And that was up from, I think, around 116 in 2014. So that's a problem. We're still seeing it, and we need to learn more about it. I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak here in the studio with HIV specialist Scott Denny. He is, has a master's and is a physician assistant, and he runs an HIV clinic. We are going to be talking with him again in just a moment about how we can really figure out who are these newly diagnosed folks, and how can we figure out a way to make sure that we halt the spread of HIV so that we can all live as long and healthy as possible. We'll be right back after this quick break. Stay with us. Support for The Body Show comes from the HPR Local Talk Show Fund, which helps Hawaii Public Radio sustain and grow its locally produced talk shows. Mahalo to contributors Inter-Island Solar Supply, Kaiser Permanente, and Hastings and Pleadwell, a communication company. Welcome back to The Body Show. I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak here with HIV specialist Scott Denny, and we're talking about HIV and AIDS. What's the difference, and why are there still new diagnoses, and have we forgotten about the fact that this is still an infection that is communicable and is out there? Now, right before the break, uh, Scott, you mentioned that there are 152 new diagnoses in the state of Hawaii. When we think about who is getting newly diagnosed, this is only really scratching the surface as to who might actually have been exposed. So if we know that 152 are diagnosed and you know that one in eight you mentioned don't know, does that mean that there are eight times more people who potentially could be infected here in the islands? Potentially. And so how do we figure out, well, let me put it this way. Why would they want to be tested? What is the advantage of finding out that you're positive? Does that have to do with treatment that we may provide you? And or does it have to do with education to stop spreading it or both? It's, it's a little of both. Obviously, if you know you have it, you can minimize your chances of transmitting it to someone else. Um, if you have the infection, you're aware of it, you can be treated. We also know now that the sooner that you are treated for HIV, the better off you are long-term wise. 
there's something around 50 or 60% increase in malignancies and cardiovascular problems when you delay starting treatment for HIV. So there's, there's become a lot of information about this chronic inflammation that people have, even with really well-controlled HIV. And the sooner you can get that under wraps, the less you're going to you know, have chances of developing some of those things later on. So we know identifying it and treating sooner is the way to go. Well, and this is different than when it first came out. There used to be a thought that when someone first was diagnosed, you would start treatment as they progressed with lower and lower CD4 counts. So there is a difference between early treatment and initiation of treatment, and then people who present with AIDS-defining illnesses. Clear that up for us. HIV can lead to AIDS. AIDS means you're infected with HIV, but not all patients diagnosed with HIV are at that stage where their immune cells are that compromised. What is that definition? How do we know the difference between the two groups? HIV is human immunodeficiency virus. It's basically the virus that causes HIV infection. People can live asymptomatic without any symptoms of having HIV for many years. Over time, HIV left untreated will progress to acquired immune deficiency syndrome or AIDS. And basically, that is a progressive failure of the immune system to the point that it's allowing life-threatening opportunistic infections and malignancies. Left untreated, the average length of time that someone probably will live with HIV is anywhere from 9 to 11 years before they progress to, to full AIDS. So during that line to 11 years, there is an opportunity to start treating the virus. Now, is it true or is this one of those falsehoods that maybe I just recall from training that if you start treatment, you may develop a resistance to some of the medications so that you constantly have to monitor and or alter the treatment to deal with people who become resistant kind of like people do with antibiotics. Bacteria become resistant to penicillin. HIV becomes resistant to AZT and some of the other medicines. Does that still happen a lot? It does happen. Where resistance derives from is when someone, for the most part, when someone has either acquired a resistant virus from someone who's given it to them, but that's only about 15% that we know of. The other people who develop resistance, it's because they've been incompliant taking their antiretroviral medications. So not at the right time or not as many per day as they're supposed to. Right. Back in the day, uh, some of the older docs used to talk about taking a break, give your body a break, take a week off or a month off on the And that was a bad idea. Bad idea. Because what you do is you give the virus an opportunity to replicate without that suppression of the medications. So the next time you try and use those medications, they won't work. And it may have mutated. Yes. And that mutation of the virus, which happens with the common cold, it happens with the flu virus, it happens with the HIV virus, is inherent in viruses, that it's a property that they can mutate, which is why you need to be really careful with your medicine. Right. Always take them. Always. Now, the medication does have side effects and some unique side effects. Lipodystrophy, for example, the acquisition of body fat in different areas that may not be what we normally would think of for someone who might gain weight. It might be particularly in their back or in their abdomen or something. Not all the medicines are as easy to tolerate as we would hope. But in general, are these medications something that people can take regularly? 
So some of the older school medications we used to use, the antiretrovirals. Yeah, okay. <laughs> Sorry about that. That's um, right. Those those did cause those kinds of side effects, and the face the facial wasting that you see, and the, the trunk gets a little bit larger from the fat redistribution. We used to see that a lot. We don't see that as much anymore with these new medications. There's newer classes that we use now, and. They come as one pill a day, most of them. One pill a day? One pill a day. It's more convenient than most of my blood pressure pills. Seriously. Really? So we've mastered it to the point where one pill a day. So because it's so simple of a routine, the advantage of being tested and treating early is that you really can get a good handle on this infection, and it doesn't require a pill burden of 20 pills a day. It could be one. Right. And probably minimum to no side effects whatsoever. Now, another interesting point about it is where we're moving in terms of treatment is some of the clinical trials that are happening now are in injectables. So it would be getting one injection a month instead of having to take pill every day. So we're making it even easier. Yes. So really, there's no reason why to fear being diagnosed and being treated because we've made it much more manageable. Definitely. Now, you mentioned injections that could potentially be given once a month. Clinical trials are starting to look at that. Would that, I assume, address some of the resistance issues? It would. You know, the the problem that you would have with the injectable is if you did have someone who was on an injectable and they were noncompliant, meaning they didn't show up to get their injection, you, you, you have that risk of resistance almost on a greater front because now you're having a medicine that has a longer half-life trailing behind and therefore would would potentially increase the, the resistance level. As opposed to giving someone a prescription for pills, and if they didn't show up but had a refill, they might continue on the medication. Although they should show up regularly, if they missed an appointment, there is the potential they could continue on it. Right. As opposed to an injection. Right. You know, it makes me think back to what they did with birth control. A few years back, they decided to have a once-a-month birth control shot for women who couldn't remember the pill every day. And it wasn't very popular because that... Once a month shot sometimes happened on Sundays or on days when clinics were closed and if you can't make it that one day. So they wound up going back to the old regular pills that you take every day or actually doing some other types of things with depot devices that were actually placed in the arm that allowed for continuous use of the medication without having to really take it in or out or anything like that. So it's interesting. I wonder if we're going to move in that direction with some of the HIV medicines. I wouldn't be surprised. Uh, I think where the injectables might be most helpful is when we talk about treatment as prevention. In other words, right now we have something called PrEP, pre-exposure prophylaxis. And by someone taking a medication every day, one pill a day, they can reduce their risks of getting HIV by anywhere upwards of 92 to 96 percent chance, which is fantastic. And I think that the injectables might serve that population a little bit better Potentially. All right. I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak here in the studio with Scott Denny. He is an HIV specialist. And when we come back, we're going to talk a little bit more about who would need the pre-exposure prep and how might this be something that folks may not have heard about or realized but could help them significantly. We'll be right back after this quick break. Stay with us. Support for The Body Show comes from the HPR Local Talk Show Fund, which helps Hawaii Public Radio sustain and grow its locally produced talk shows. Mahalo to contributors, locations, Nohea Gallery, and Straub Medical Center. 
Welcome back to The Body Show. I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak here in the studio with HIV specialist Scott Denny. Now, Scott, you've alluded to having a clinic earlier. Tell me a little bit about that. Well, I have a, a, a pretty um, a comprehensive clinic. I, I, I um, kindly refer to it as my clinic of misfits. Uh, I oversee the, the HIV population, and I oversee the transgender population, as well as the pre-exposure prophylaxis population or the PrEP population. And uh, we basically monitor labs routinely, check their blood work, check viral loads to make sure the virus is completely suppressed and we can't see it in the blood, make sure that the patients are doing well on their medications. And then we help tag team with the primary care providers to ensure that their overall comprehensive health care is managed and your clinic is? My clinic is at Kaiser Permanente uh, at the Moana Lua Medical Center. And so your job and your role is to work in conjunction with primary care providers to make sure that this comprehensive level of care is given for every individual. So you may act in conjunction with the primary care provider, but the idea is that you work on a team approach. Absolutely. Now, you've alluded to the PrEP. And that's something that I think in the medical world would be really interesting because if you know, for example, that you are potentially going to be exposed, whether it be with a high-risk surgical case or whatever it may be, universal precautions have always been recommended. But who, who would be most appropriate for the pre-exposure prep? What population is that? Pre-exposure prophylaxis is good for populations who have potentially high-risk sexual behavior, are IV drug users, or they may be in what we call a discordant relationship where one individual is positive HIV and the other is not. And it can reduce your chances of, of acquiring the infection in the event that you're not using condoms or prefer not to use condoms, although I'm always going to recommend that you wear condoms. So many of the men who have sex with men population uh, do well on this medication, uh, Going back to that idea that there's so many individuals out there who we don't know if they have HIV or not, this gives those negative individuals uh, more confidence, more reassurance in knowing that their, their chances of getting HIV are, are lower. Well, and I would think it would be ideal for needle stick injuries. You know, as a primary care provider, I will see individuals in the hospital who are my patients who may have had a needle stick injury. And there's an automatic assumption that they need to do some type of post-exposure treatment, which is often triple therapy, just for a duration of time until there's a certainty that there was no exposure. So when we talk about doing injectable treatment, that just seems to be ideal for that particular scenario, if it were to be applicable. In this case, we're looking at, as you mentioned, discordancy in partnership, so that there may be one person who is HIV positive, one who is not. And certainly there would be an, an intent to not share that virus with the partner, if at all possible. So another role for that PrEP type of situation where it could be pre-exposure as opposed to, you know, needle stick injury, post-exposure prophylaxis. So really some exciting things going on in the treatment options category. What do you think is coming down the pike? What sort of research? You mentioned the clinical trials to look at the injectable treatments. Where should we be heading with HIV and AIDS treatment? Should we start looking at other types of, you mentioned malignancies, should we start doing statistical studies? Have we done those to determine if we need to do different cancer screenings for certain populations? Some of those things are in the works. We're definitely evaluating the types of things we should be screening for based on what we've seen happening with this population. 
what we're looking at in the future, because HIV is what we call like a quasi-species, meaning when it mutates, when it replicates 10 billion copies every single day, every time it's doing that, it's making errors. And every time it makes errors, it makes mutations in different strains of itself. And every time you have a new strain, you have to figure, well, how would a vaccine target that strain? You think of like the flu vaccine where it's Every year it's different. Correct. And we try and give shots and people say, why do I need it every year? Because it's muted. And half the time they don't work. Very true. That's another problem. So when you're trying to target HIV, it's like trying to target hundreds of strains. It's a moving target. Right. It's hard to – how do you create a vaccine that's going to protect against that? That's what makes the vaccine so difficult. I think where we're focusing a lot more now is on what we call a functional cure, meaning how – if we can get the level of the virus completely suppressed in their blood on their medications and then start looking at the areas where it's hiding. We call them reservoirs in the gut, in the brain. Target those reservoirs. Get the HIV virus to come out. Target them and kill them off. And essentially, we've eradicated what we think to be the most part of the virus in the body. And instead of it being an eradication cure, it's more of a functional cure. So they wouldn't have to be on meds anymore, though potentially we don't know if the virus might come back one day. Well, and it makes me think about the hepatitis C situation, is that for years we were giving treatments that worked maybe 10, 15% of the time, the old interferon regimens. And now these days with new research, there are potential treatments that have 95, 98% cure rate. And it took us a long time doing the research to come up with these. But now that particular diagnosis, which again, we've been screening for and trying to find out who is exposed and who can we target the treatment for, it has actually transformed hepatitis C for a lot of individuals because they've been able to be cured. And we see eradication. They've done plenty of studies that have looked at the long-term efficacy of that. So it sounds like the next area where we need to put our emphasis is in doing the same thing for HIV. Right. It's incredible what we're seeing with hepatitis C. I mean, to be a healthcare provider in this day and age and to actually be seeing something cured, literally eradicated, is amazing. It's remarkable. Uh, I do think that that's sort of the philosophy about the HIV approach is, can we just get it out of the body? And although they've been infected and they're, quote, HIV positive, how can we remove most of it from the body so that we can reduce the chances of these malignancies or other cardiovascular problems, and at the same time, keep them off of medications on a daily basis? So you've alluded to malignancies and heart troubles. Can you be more specific? Well, we see all kinds of malignancies. Uh, oddly enough, for the most part, lymphomas, leukemias we see, those are the most probably common. Oddly enough, the, the one that does not seem to be as common out of all of them is prostate cancer. And we're not really quite sure why that is the case. I have my own theories. Um, but it is, it is striking. I, like I said, it's somewhere around 50 to 70% high, greater chances of these malignancies as you get older even when you're treated on HIV medication sometimes. The only thing we know that is different is that those individuals who are treated sooner do better. Thus the idea that gets screened if you haven't been. And then if you do have a positive result, make sure that you start treatment early. As opposed to what we used to do 20, now I'm dating myself, 20, 30 years (laughs) ago, is we used to be treated later. So we weren't as careful about how we were doing that. 
And then you also mentioned cardiovascular disease, higher rate of heart attacks. Yes. We are seeing earlier onset MIs. We're seeing uh, lipidemia problems. Coronary artery disease is increased. Again, we bring it back to that concept of inflammation. And it's like your body's always fighting a flu. And so that chronic inflammation, it just promotes that development of plaque in the arteries and those kinds of things. Well, and we've talked a lot about inflammation. We know that inflammation is really a source of a lot of the issues regarding cardiovascular disease, different types of arthritis, a variety of different elements where inflammation is a sign that our body is trying to fight something off and we have to pay attention to it. And so this is another aspect where it can lead to some more earlier diagnosis, as you mentioned, heart attacks and other sorts of problems. Well, I feel like I have learned an immense amount today. Good. And I do hope that all healthcare providers can find a way to make sure that their their LGBTQ community feels comfortable in their offices so that people don't feel so disenfranchised. I want to thank you for sharing your expertise with us today and helping to open up everyone's eyes, including my own, about ways in which we can help this population. Thank you. It was my pleasure. Thank you for joining us. Scott Denny is a physician assistant and HIV specialist, and he works at Kaiser Permanente. If you'd like to hear this show again, you can click on our podcast, hawaiipublicradio.org. You can also find us on the you can find us on Facebook and also on the app. There's a new app for HPR, which allows you to play shows that have previously been recorded. Our engineer today is David Chong, our executive producer, Beth Ann Kozlovich. I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak. We'll see you next week right here on The Body Show. See you then.